Hello everybody and welcome to episode 128 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. Well, stuff that matters in golf anyway, and on this episode there's a significant crossover between the two, it seems. As December rapidly approaches, it seems uncertainty around the June 6 framework agreement announced by the PGA Tour and Saudi Arabia's public investment fund only grows. Add in the violence and political turmoil of the past week in the Middle East, and there may well be further implications for that deal. But what do we in the West really know of Saudi Saudi Arabia and its culture and system of governance. Is golf doing a deal with the devil, or has the kingdom and its leader, Mohammed bin Salman, been misrepresented by Western media? Chances are something resembling truth lies somewhere in between all that, and today we'll dig a little deeper with a guest who might actually know, Dr. Josh Ralston of the Edinburgh University School of Divinity will join us in just a moment. The us I refer to is, of course, my co-hosts in this all-too-infrequent audio adventure from the US, blogger, author, substacker, and regular with Lawrence Donegan on the McKellar Magazine Golf Podcast, Jeff Shackelford. Jeff, you and Lawrence are doing a really good job staying on top of this story, unlike most of us, I've got to say. Apart from encouraging people to buy McKellar Magazine and also subscribe to your substack, The Quadrilateral, I'll be really interested to hear Josh's thoughts from a somewhat different perspective. Yeah, I will be too, because this is a story that's uh, uh, not going away and it has new dimensions and, and, and it sure seems like we're headed for a showdown where the, uh, the uh, deal of June 6th, as they now call or the events of June 6th are falling apart. Yeah. Let me get that right. The framework agreement is no more. And, and the, um, the events of June 6th agreement appear to be, uh, pretty much, uh, either toast or, or going to be watered down significantly to, to the point where we, it's pretty, I think it's pretty obvious we're going to be in this situation of a splintered uh, world of pro golf for a while. Interesting stuff. Also with us from Australia's spiritual home of golf in Melbourne, though he spends a lot of time in what is emerging as the new public golf capital of Australia in Tasmania at Seven Mile Beach co-designer, former tour player Mike Clayton. Clayton, you organised this chat with Josh for us. So A, I expect you to do most of the heavy lifting with the questions, and B, I'm sure based on that you're looking forward to the chat at least as much as I am. Yeah, I heard Josh on a podcast uh, a little while ago, and I thought it was interesting to have a more nuanced debate than we've had with Brandel Chambly and um, that kind of whacking MBS over the head and see if there's another side to this and see how the whole thing actually really works. So There may be a few sides, Clates, I suspect, will be what emerges from the discussion today, because I, like you, heard that uh, podcast as well which is an excellent segue to introduce the most important of today's group. Some of you may have heard his excellent interview with Kevin Moore and Matt Considine on the Bag Drop podcast, which Clates just referred to. If you did, you'd know that Dr. Josh Rosson is not only an expert in the field of Christian-Muslim relations, but I think it's safe to say also a certifiable golf nut. That's meant as a compliment. Josh, Josh, you should also fit in quite nicely. Is that true? Welcome. Looking forward to the chat today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I look forward to the conversation and unpacking a little bit of uh, the complications of uh, golf's involvement in Saudi Arabia or Saudi Arabia's involvement in golf. Um, I make jokes that uh, as an American who's lived in Scotland for eight years, inevitably about the second or third hole, I get asked, uh, what brought me here? What do I do? And I have to decide if I'm going to say I teach religion and politics, which is a dicey subject in uh, Scotland. Uh, but uh, my first few years here, everyone asked me about ISIS, and now everyone asks me about, about Live. So I'm used to talking about uh, Live and uh, the Saudis on the golf course. Yeah, well, you do, in fact, bring an interesting perspective because you are a committed golf fan and an interested observer of everything about the game, not just from the top players and how they play, but to the, some of the stuff. I know that you're a subscriber to Jeff's um, 
uh, Substack and all that sort of stuff, I'm going to start in the laziest possible way. If I handed the reins over to you for this episode, Josh, where would you start? Because I'll be frank, I have no idea where to even begin with this and what's happened in the past week. Yeah, I think it's important to understand that Saudi Arabia, uh, as well as the broader Middle East, has their own internal politics, aims, goals, and aspirations uh, that involve the West, that involve sports, uh, but also involve their own internal dynamics and politics. And there is sometimes a tendency when we're talking about Saudi Arabia to speak about it only from our perspective uh, and to fail to understand the complexity of internal Saudi politics as well as what Saudi's trying to do uh, in the broader Middle East and in the West. Uh, and so one of the things that I'm committed to is trying to think not only about questions of sports washing, which we can get into, but also about what is MBS Saudi trying to do beyond just their involvement in golf uh, and in and in Western perceptions. So that's probably where I would like to start and to, to give a little bit of a background uh, because there's a tendency to paint a really broad brushstroke, not of the Middle East, of Arab countries, uh, and to sort of rely on popular tropes and fail to understand how complex and diverse uh, those places are. Let's start with that then. Most of us would get most of our news, and I don't think most of us go looking for uh, deep reporting on Saudi Arabia and its internal politics and whatnot. Is the general messaging we get about Saudi Arabia and the Middle East more generally roughly on the money or... Is it much more complex than most of us in the West would have any understanding of if we didn't go looking for information? Yeah, it's both accurate and limited, as most stereotypes or headlines are. Uh, Saudi is an important country given their oil uh, revenues, as well as given the fact that since the founding of the Saudi as a as a modern nation state in 1925, they've controlled Mecca and Medina, the two holiest sites for Muslims. Uh, so it is an important country. Uh, although interestingly, historically, uh, in in global politics, Saudi was not that important compared to places like Egypt, modern Egypt, modern Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Turkey. It's only with the growth of sort of the oil booms in the 1930s. Uh, that Saudis really become as powerful as they are. Uh, so that's one thing to say. Uh, the second is that there's a tendency for us to think about Saudi or MBS only through the lens of radical Islam. Uh, and of course, Saudi does practice a particular form of Islam. The founding of the modern state of Saudi was dependent upon this. Uh, but Saudis are actually a lot more diverse than that. There are Shias, there are dissidents, uh, there are those that don't uh, subscribe to this. And in fact, MBS himself uh, is not a particularly ardent uh, person committed to Wahhabism. He's in fact oppressed a number of these clerics to limit their power. So what he's doing in some way is uh, repressing in the name of his own sort of liberal reform. It's not really liberal. It's still autocratic. So I don't think uh, MBS especially has as much to do with Islam as people think. Right. Simple question then. Is golf important in all of this, particularly given what we've seen unfold in the last week? Uh, and 
the events of last week, will they impact on the golf framework that we would – the events of June 6th as Jeff's taken – I don't think it was Jeff that was taken a call. Someone from the PGA Tour deemed yeah, the yeah, events that was their, That's 6th, how they the, refer to it internally now, the, apparently. The framework yeah. agreement. Is any of this important in all of that, Josh, particularly given what we've seen in the last week, which I think has really shaken the world on a much bigger scale, obviously? Yeah, it's hard to know what's going to unfold in Gaza, in Israel, uh, if there's going to be a broader war with Syria, Lebanon. Uh, the Saudis themselves had been involved with UAE uh, in the possible Abraham Accords. That seems to have fallen apart. Uh, interestingly, Saudi talked to Iran for the first time, I think, since MBS has been in power uh, a couple of days ago because of this. It, it's certainly going to have an impact on their involvement in a number of Western activities. I think sport, sport is one of their important things. I don't think golf is as important for them as football is or soccer for the American listeners. Uh, they spent far more money on football and and uh, than golf, in part because football is a much bigger and more wealth-producing sport yeah, globally than golf is. Uh, but I can certainly imagine that what's going on right now will further shift the conversation and debate. The The framework agreement always seemed, already seemed to be on very rocky ground. And uh, depending on what Saudi does with the Israel-Gaza conflict will say a lot about how people might be willing to engage with them. It's complex stuff, isn't it, Jeff? <laughs> this broader stuff, given that the government in the US was already involved in looking at the framework agreement, does what happened in Israel last week and what's now happening there, which could spread to something much more, much broader than just the Middle East, obviously. You can't imagine that that's a positive for the way the government will view this deal between the PGA Tour and the PIF. Uh, perhaps not. I, I, I really don't know what they're looking at. I'm still confused as to what uh, this this deal is about this pro for profit entity versus the nonprofit, and now we know it's up for bid, and they're they're seven bids in, and I I don't really know what you're getting for that um with that, so that's that's where I'm still struggling, um, and maybe Josh knows. I'd like to I'd like to read Josh a couple of quotes, and maybe he can. This might get to to the, the explanation at least on the. On the money side of of what um, these folks are about and what the public investment fund is um, allowed to do with their money, um, but uh, this was this was um, uh, MBS Josh saying uh, to uh, Fox's Brett Bear, uh, if sport washing is going to increase my GDP by way of one percent, then I will continue doing sport washing. And then he said, uh, he reiterated, I don't care. I have one percent growth of GDP from sport. And I'm aiming for another one and a half percent. Call it whatever you want. We're going to get that one and a half percent. What? 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 Obviously, we know the golf part is, as you noted, is a small uh, piece of this compared to football, particularly since the live model isn't making a whole lot of money at the moment. Uh, what? What is? What is he doing? What, what is he? What is he up to? <laughs> Yeah, it, it's a little bit opaque because of the lack of freedom of information and real criticism that's allowed to come out of Saudi. Uh, it is clear that he has an aim, both with his NEOM project, the new city that he's trying to build in, in the northwest of Saudi, uh, as well as the decision to buy four of the Saudi uh, football clubs and aiming to sell them. So there's a clear, I think you can see maybe what he was hoping with Liv would be something like 
what he's hoping with the Saudis. And I mean him as a broader yep. entity of the whole public investment fund, uh, which was uh, nationalize these four sports teams, bring in Cristiano Ronaldo, Kareem Benzema, and Gola Conte, get a lot of people interested, and then sell them and bring in outside investment. Because one of the biggest issues facing internally to Saudi uh, is the question of future economic growth, uh, if oil is going to be declining and to to incentivize this. And he, I think, hoped that sports would do this. And in some ways it has with, with football. Um, the purchase of Newcastle United, for instance, has been largely, I, I think, as someone who lives in the UK and supports an English football club, it's actually been largely successful. Uh, I was at a, I, I'm a Tottenham supporter. Uh, all the uh, Aussies should like that now that we have Ange Postacoglu. Uh, I was <laughs> down, down at a, yeah, exactly. I was at a match uh, when they were playing Newcastle and the Newcastle fans are waving Saudi flags uh, on the walk into the stadium. So it's easy to think uh, in sort of our enlightened critical critical sense that, oh, sports washing is not working. Um, but the positive affection of that, and, and, and I, it's also important to understand that Saudi is in some ways trying to copy what was already successful for the UAE and for a lesser extent for Qatar. They're behind the ball on what the UAE already successfully done. Uh, the UAE just did it with much better lipstick. Hmm. Josh, how much of it, Josh, is you think that they're building golf courses for tourism? Is that a small part of why they're getting involved in golf? I mean, Ask clearly... the golf course architect. <laughs> yeah, Clates, what are you what are you angling at here, Clates? <laughs> well, we've already decided we're not going to build courses in Saudi Arabia, but um, you know, clearly it's been a significant part of tourism in Dubai. I mean, lots, lots of people, I mean, lots of Europeans go and play golf in Dubai in the winter. Yeah, I I think the fact that they're largely focusing on the West Coast, so the Red Sea, um, so you could fly into Jeddah instead of Riyadh or to this new city, you would have water lines with the Red Sea. The Red Sea's got great snorkeling. Uh, the mountain, there, there's actually a little bit more. Uh, I've never been to Saudi. I've been lots of other places in the Middle East, uh, but you've got the mountains that makes it a lot more attractive. So it makes sense that they would want to focus some of the tourism there. Uh they don't let non-Muslims into Mecca and Medina, which would be the biggest tourist sites possible, but Muslims would have an uproar if those shifted from being sites of pilgrimage to sites of tourism. But the areas around it, they're interested in economic growth in those areas. I read something in The Guardian uh, that they've already spent something like six billion uh, pounds on sport just last year. Uh, and some of that has to be aims at transforming the Western side of Saudi Arabia, including things like tourism, they've hired, uh, you know, YouTubers, Instagram influencers, especially in those three years before the assassination of Khashoggi, you had, uh, you know, these tours with MBS going to meet with the head of Apple or getting glowing stories about him in the Washington Post. And part of that was to increase, to open up Saudi uh, to the world, but also in the sense to um, give Saudis internally especially wealthier ones, an opportunity to live in ways that were uh, somewhat more Western. Many of them had already studied in the West. I regularly have Saudi students in my classes. Uh, and the balance between what they've experienced when they're on holiday in London or in Paris and what they're experiencing in Riyadh, they, they could still shop, but there's different ways in which tourism, sport, 
Western engagement is is in some ways the model uh, of of Dubai uh, to some extent, but Abu Dhabi even more importantly. Josh, it's an overly simplistic question, but are those two things, one that you mentioned, one that Clates mentioned, the Saudi flag waving by the Newcastle fans going into the, the stadium and Clates' firm already deciding that they don't want to do work in Saudi Arabia, are those things good or bad? Are they... <laughs> I know it's overly simplistic, but are we on the right track? What's the best way to engage with Saudi, given some of the things you've outlined about how the country works internally? Yeah, I think the question of Saudi is a broader question about ethics, uh, global politics, and sport. It's not just about Saudi, but Saudi becomes this particular issue that touches on a whole host of other moral questions. Um, not to be overly broad, but there was some way in which we thought after the fall of, uh, I say we as a Westerner, um, that uh, economic liberty would go hand in hand with political liberty. And what we've discovered over the last 10, 15 years is that's not the case, uh, that you have economic power in places like China, uh, in Saudi, in the Emirates, uh, even historically in Russia that have embraced capitalism and embraced autocratic authoritarian regimes. Hmm. And many sports uh, depend on those places for a variety of ways. I mean, we play golf in China. Uh, the NBA has gone to China. There is the race to Dubai in the DP World Tour. Um, and to me, much of the UAE is as repressive as Saudi. They just do it in a much more uh, open Western way. So it, it raises a question about how do we engage in these moral and complex uh, situations? I mean, what becomes interesting for me as a scholar about this case was the ways in which um, rather than Saudi becoming an opportunity for more critical self-reflection, both about ourselves as Westerners and about our involvement in other places, it's become a sort of um, way to to not engage these questions. Um, and, and for me, these these are are fundamental about what is the future of sort of global capitalism. Uh, is, is it going to go hand in hand with political freedoms or is what we're seeing is actually a shift away from political freedoms and the the power of, of capital, no matter where it's coming from. Can sport have a role to play in there then, Josh, if Saudis want and court this? Because sensibly, unlike many, well, certainly unlike golf, they seem to have a 50-year plan at least. They know the oil's going to run out, so they're at least planning for it. Golf doesn't do that. But does sport have a role to play in that? Can it influence the internal politics of a place like Saudi Arabia, particularly if they come to rely on it more? Is there a potential for that? The problem with these things, Josh, isn't it? If you don't engage, there can be no change if that's what you think should happen. So just not engaging whilst it's the knee-jerk simple reaction. It's my own simple reaction. So, well, I wouldn't take Saudi money, but is that actually the best way forward? Yeah, I, I think a few things. One is it's inevitable that we engage with Saudi. Uh, it's We're all in some ways probably – engaged in it with Saudi, whether we want to or not. If you have the a question car, is likely is that you've yeah. got some engagement with Saudi, isn't it? It's Yeah. And, and you know, their investment, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but the amount of real estate that Saudi government uh, owns in London, uh, in Paris, probably in Melbourne or Sydney as well, um, 
is is quite significant. Um, They'd be only the few who say, can afford Sydney, Josh, just quietly. Yeah, <laughs> Sydney yeah, yeah. is not a cheap place to buy real estate. I can tell you exactly. And and, and actually, part of the, the the increase of prices in places like London is in part because of the purchase of Russian, Saudi, Emiratis who want to have their money safe away from those governments if their autocrat does what autocrats do and puts them in a Ritz-Carlton and says, give me $10 billion before you can get out. If your money's in in London, it becomes slightly easier. I I do think uh, engaging sport has long been a way for cross-cultural, cross-political forms of engagement. Uh, Think about examples from the Cold War during Olympics. Uh, Think about the the U.S. Dream Team in 1992. Think about the ways in which the World Cup has gone places, often very problematically, uh, that were seen to grow the game or to increase involvement in society. So I do think that sport has a possibility of of engaging. The question for me is, what would en- what would engagement in Saudi actually look like, uh, given the fact that there is a significant amount of repression for any internal dissent? And it's not just internal dissent that happens to be liberal or Western. It's also internal dissent that is uh, Shia or more conservative or Twitter accounts. Um, So how someone, I'll just use, how is Cristiano Ronaldo or Kareem Benzema or Phil Mickelson or Brooks Kepka? I know they're playing in Saudi as we speak. uh, How is that going to actually change Saudi society? In the short term, it's very difficult to see how it's going to, it's going to do that. But uh, I think in the longer term, we have seen ways in which sport can transform societies as one amongst many of other cultural factors. Jeff, am I right in thinking that part of the live contracted players, part of the contract is not to be critical of the kingdom? Is that right? They're, they're pretty heavily vetted on what they can say publicly, are they not? Yeah, there was some language in one of the deals. Uh, it's been a while now that that made clear that was. Uh, not something they would like to hear from from players, uh, but it was rather broad language, as I recall. I don't have it. I'll try to find it, but that that uh, could be interpreted a few different ways. But I think with the dollar figures uh, we're talking about and what the players know, uh, the objective is. I don't think they really needed it to be that no. explicit. Yeah, that would go with that. That would go without saying that <laughs> said the right thing yeah. about the boss, presumably. Which I've worked yeah. at News Limited, and the same thing is true of News Limited, Josh. So, <laughs> what the, what aboutism has some uh, base in reality, doesn't it? Where we in the West are as guilty of many of the things that we accuse places like Saudi Arabia of in in Mormon. We, we lock up children in refugee camps in Australia behind razor wire. Um, you know that that happens here. So, how do you respond to that sort of what aboutism? That's all part of this, isn't it? Yeah, I think. Um I, I told this story in the previous podcast, so I'll say it again. Uh, in 2021, uh, no, 2022, during the Scottish Open, uh, I, because a lot of the pros and a whole bunch of the caddies uh, hang out in North Berwick, play in North Berwick. Um, I'm friends with some of them from my childhood, and I ended up at a pub a few nights, and we ended up talking about Saudi and about uh, live and whether they would take the money or not. And I was trying to just... I mean, I have strong opinions about the Saudi government, but I was trying to talk about what are some of the ethical questions that come out, not in a whataboutism, but in a, well, if you go to Dubai, 
and you go to Abu Dhabi, how do you draw a distinction between this? Do you know what they do? Most of them had no idea. Uh, most of the caddies just wanted to take their players to take the money because they wanted the comfort of of that. But there were a number that uh, didn't even know that uh, the UAE and Saudi, while there's some tension now, have f- fairly similar authoritarian governments, will lock up people uh, for the smallest amount of dissent. And this caused some sort of trouble. I mean, I don't know if you saw Rory's comment after this came out, um, one of his many comments where he was saying, you know, I realized that I lived in Dubai uh, for a number of years and I have a number of their friends and I disagree with some things, but this makes me think about, rethink about that. He didn't come to a conclusion, but he was being somewhat self-reflective of of this. The problem of whataboutism is that it avoids the moral question. Uh, What we should do is use this as an occasion to engage with a whole host of other ethical and moral questions uh, about sport, money I, I i'm not trying to be naive we live in a complex world we never we're always complicit in some ways um but there is a significant reality that from the very outset the south the, of the formation of the modern saudi state which happens in the 1920s essentially they are uh supported first by the british and then by the americans as an american we had a military base there since 1945 uh, we've been deeply involved in the in the oil production there. The Brits used the Saudis during World War One, uh, supported uh, Ibn Saud as he's known to the West. Uh, so our hands aren't clean in terms of how the the ruling family in Saudi Arabia came to power. That doesn't again mean that we're complicit in everything that happens in Saudi, but there needs to be some self reflection about the entanglement that the West has long had with Saudi uh, during during the uh, the First World War, during the Cold War, and then especially for the U.S. in the so-called War on Terror. None of those could have happened without Saudi. If we went to Saudi Arabia 150 years ago, what was it like? What was, what was the society like and how did the country run and what would we have found? So there was there was no such thing as Saudi Arabia. Okay. Um, there were essentially regions that were ruled by emirs or sultans. Um, the Najd, which is the area where Riyadh is, a high plain, uh, which historically had some power, but not nearly as significant as the Hejaz, which would be the area uh, near the Red Sea where Mecca and Medina is. That area was much more connected. The Ottomans were involved. Egyptians, Brits, um, you would have a fairly, uh, I wouldn't say illiterate, but a, a, a largely, you would have certain sites of of significant learning in Mecca and Medina and some in Riyadh, hmm. but a largely uh, pastoral community with a strong hierarchical reign based on family connections. Uh, and so uh, the the western part of Saudi Arabia was far more engaged with the world, the Ottoman Empire, the the Brits in, and French increasing re- encroachment, while the that area was not that involved. So there wasn't even a Saudi. This is a word based on Ibn Saud, the family. Uh, so he created the country, wanted to name it after himself, 
And somebody said, well, why don't you include Arabia, too, so you don't sound so arrogant? Um, was there a clue there, so there was, that we might have missed at the time? Was that, <laughs> Is there a clue yeah, there yeah. that the West might have missed at the time that he wanted to name the country after himself? Um, goodness me. Is there yeah. a sense of nationalism within Saudi now? And the country's only 100 years old, as you said, as a nation state. Does that exist in the way that we might recognise as Australians or Americans or Brits? Yeah, I think uh, one of the one of MBS's goal is to create an increasing sense of Saudi nationalism or Saudi identity. Uh, if he becomes king, he would be the first king who is not the son of Ibn Saud. So Ibn Saud dies in 1953, and he's had a series of other sons because he had, I don't even know the full number, but sons over 40 some odd years with different wives, different concubines. So uh, MBS, there's also a cultural and generational shift where this older memory of Ibn Saud, which was very much started pre-oil, is now being transformed. And one of the things that MBS is trying to do is create a sense of national identity, partly around a cult of personality, his own cult of personality. Um, and things like sport is a great way to do this, that you own Newcastle United, that Cristiano Ronaldo comes here, that you're going to pay Lionel Messi half a billion dollars uh, contract. He said no. Uh, but that is a way to rally some sense of of Saudi identity, especially amongst younger uh, communities. It's uh, complex stuff, isn't it, Jeff? Where does golf fit in all this? What should golf be doing, do you reckon, Jeff? I think our views are pretty clear. I've not been a great fan of it, but I don't think the business model of Live makes a whole lot of sense, nor the actual model of it as we've seen it now for two years. It's not produced anything that made you say as a golf fan, it's not for me, but it's at least interesting. It doesn't feel like there's been much of that. What do you reckon, Jeff? What's what's going to happen in that case? And has golf done itself a disservice with an already awkward public image, which filters down to all sorts of levels, including our own Oakley golf course here in Melbourne? Clay, it's a little nine-hole public track, which is under pressure and threat of closure. Um, what does golf do now, Jeff? Uh, well, I, I think there's definitely a fatigue factor with all the discussion of all the the problems of these uh, pro golfers and there's a fatigue factor within the the, the golf world uh that i experienced just in conversation at, at uh, when i was over in josh's area and the walker cup and um people are rather bored with the plight of these players and they're rather uh, myopic and just really uh narcissistic take on their place in the world of golf uh as the sport is is uh thriving in spite of them uh but they don't they don't need to hear that i guess the thing i'm i as josh was talking i was thinking you know uh, football is clearly going to be something where there's upside I, I just don't see the upside ever happening in golf with the even in their best case scenario of franchises accruing value and becoming something that people want to uh, be a part of it just seems like the way they've they've started and the resistance they've met the bad team names, you go through all of it, uh, the players that they've attracted, it's going to be very hard for it to uh, excel and be a part of that GDP that uh, he's he's talking about. But I do wonder how much of um, – I, I, I guess what, I'm, what I want to say is I don't say, see them letting this go because they have gotten enough – uh, interest from people like Johan Rupert and Dr. Uh, Moonjal, the uh, CEO of Hero, who's a billionaire many times over, um, who are interested in in a 
franchise and who are interested in the uh using golf to bring people together and 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 of course bring golfers to different parts of the world which i'm assuming the piff people have now found out that most of the american golfers don't like to leave the us um which is another problem in their their concept of uh at least bringing tournaments to saudi arabia so i wonder at this point if uh and i've heard a lot about uh his excellency's love of just wanting to be legitimized uh and go to the the places in golf you know have jimmy dunn bring him to deepdale and all that that at this point if they've realized that the golf's just going to be a loss leader permanently but they're still going to stick with it because it's bringing them a certain uh proximity uh to these very very wealthy uh established credible billionaires and and people of the corporate world do you, do you think that is a possibility uh in this yeah i think with football it's very clear whether they can pull it off or not how you could make a significant amount of money either within saudi or with newcastle i mean newcastle will make them money the premier league whether it's the nfl or the premier league i'm not sure is is the biggest sport league in the world uh and you're selling clubs at, at astronomical numbers so that makes sense golf has never made sense financially to me um and i i listened to one of your previous podcasts and, and this is part of the the whole problem is golfers are wanting to be paid like tiger woods uh yeah. or like steph curry or cristiano ronaldo when most people in the world i mean golf is not nearly as high up in in world interest as the nba or football or uh, i mean i don't know about various other uh, sports in australia but golfers are not those things but they want to be paid like i'll just use you know they want to be paid like cristiano ronaldo steph curry um and but cristiano ronaldo and steph curry are not going around every time they score a goal or hit shoot make a three-pointer and being you're being told how much you make which is part of this other weird thing going on right now uh so i do think uh with the Oscar, there is a significant sense that even if golf is a financial money money making loss it gives you access to capital in ways that football does not it gives you access to uh billionaires to ceos to the who's who of um various industries and that golf could be for them or for yasser or the piff a way into that kind of capital and that he's more interested in that than he is in live making money. Now, would it be great if something like live made money that we could sell the Torque uh for as much as they're going to sell uh you know Newcastle United? That's not going to happen. Uh, I'm a majestics guy, Josh. I'm not a I, I'm sorry, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so, did you know you but, can go onto the yeah, live yeah. website and it'll tell you what team you should support? You put in a couple of your personality things and it Spits out a team for I was a Majestics guy. Sorry, mate. That amused me. Okay, right you're. <laughs> I just picked Torque because I'm friends <laughs> with one of the caddies, uh, <laughs> uh, which, which, you know, uh, he wasn't necessarily thrilled about his player's decision, uh, but you know, he goes because he's a caddy. Yeah. Um, what would you have done differently if you were the PGA Tour, if anything at all, Josh? Do you think they handled it the right way? Was their initial response? Now, Rory kind of summed it up nicely once he was blindsided by the events of june 6 which was look 
if Saudi are determined, if Saudi Arabia is determined to put billions of dollars into golf, they are going to put billions of dollars into golf. So that's a reality you can't change. The PGA Tour kind of didn't take that on board in some ways, did they? They thought that they could kind of reject that and that that would work, um, which it clearly hasn't. Yeah, you all are much more educated about the ins and outs of the PGA Tour and the decisions they made. But from the outside, it was extremely short-sighted and extremely naive uh, to not take this seriously from the beginning, whether that was PGL, whether that was LIV, the sense that there was pressure financially and interest of a different kind of PGA Tour uh, that would be more international or would change the model get interest beyond just you know the four majors and you know your few other events that people are interested in uh and it just seems that jay monahan was completely uh uninterested or naive about the fact the saudis were interested i don't know what you would do though i mean think about how the saudis have been involved in women's golf um, which is a different situation because they're not making the same kind of money. Uh, there, there's a whole different politics in that uh, economically, but th- th- there could have been opportunities uh, to engage this more. Now, then you would have to raise ethical questions. I, I mean, I, I'm not sitting here thinking that golfers are ethical. I'm, no offense to any of them, but I don't think they're thinking about these ethical questions, and I don't think their agents are largely thinking about these ethical questions either. So it was up to somebody within the PGA Tour to be much more aware that Saudi has uh, uh, not just capital, but capital that is unchecked. It is controlled by a royal family and his cronies in the Saudi wealth fund and the PIF. And if they've decided that golf is one of the things they were going to do, they were going to do it. And it was simply naive to think that that was going to go away. Now, what you do, I'm not sure, but that's where we got us. That's how we got here, Hmm. Uh, that they did not take this seriously in 2017 and 18. Clayton, we don't hear enough from you. What do you need Um, to ask Josh? How much uh, we talk about access to the business world and Jimmy Dunn and the other, the billionaires in America, how much Josh is access to the actual government in America or or do they already have that? You know, the the, the behind the scenes conversations that go on that obviously determine you know policy and things that people do. How, how much access do the Saudis have to the government without the without golf? Does that make any difference to them? The Saudis have access to have had access to the US government since uh, close access since at least the first Gulf War. There has obviously been involvement before, uh, but with I mean, with the first Gulf War, the need for military bases, uh, there were already military bases, but even more. Uh, this ebbs and flows. So obviously Trump uh, was much more interested in cultivating a very close relationship, especially through Kushner. But even Biden, who said MBS is persona non grata, grata uh, after the Kosochi, a few years later, that all changes because... Saudi has an important regional role, uh, especially if Iran remains our main enemy. Uh, Iran is the main enemy for the United States and Israel, who are allies, and Saudi is an enemy of Iran as well. So uh, there is a nexus of of anti-Iranian sentiment that ties us together in addition to the oil. And, and, 
it does it help that of course trump could play golf in with with yasser yeah but um i think it's much he's there's much more of an interest in access to various business leaders uh without breaking any confidence from my wife's company she's the ceo of a ethical consulting company that comes into companies to help them make ethical decisions and the number of companies at Davos who were asking them, what do we do about Saudi? Uh, should we work in Saudi if they're for this building? Well, what if it's just to help with clean water? Then maybe we can make an exception. So this is something that companies, Fortune 100 companies, are are also thinking about. It's just strange that the PGA never, especially given how outspoken the Saudis were about their interest in investing, that they didn't get ahead of it. Now, of course, Fortune 100 companies might be better managed than the PGA Tour, but we'll leave that uncommented upon. <laughs> might doing a lot of heavy lifting there, Clates. <laughs> Can we ask you what your wife's view on where the company should be investing in Saudi Arabia is? So uh, the the she doesn't have to take the money from the Saudis, so they're helping the companies make the ethical decision okay. and walking them through ethical frameworks. Mm. So they do make a distinction, for instance, uh, between will you work in a country that has a repressive regime versus is the is the which will involve some sorts of compromise, right? Let's yeah. say you want to work in China. There's a difference between working in that country and working for that government. The difficult yeah. with Saudi is is there any line, and it doesn't. It doesn't appear that there is uh, at this moment because all of the wealth, at least all of the public investment. Um, and so most of, but of course, then if you're being offered billions of dollars and you're saying we can create X, Y, and Z uh, thing that's for the greater good, the companies can often convince themselves they can do it, whether they're really doing it for the greater good of solar energy or they're doing it for a big paycheck. Uh, yeah. Let those who have ears hear. Yeah, what's the, the there's an old saying, isn't there, Josh? We all sup with the devil. It's just some of us choose to use a longer spoon. <laughs> so, which is true. Yeah, you you distance yourself, but there's there's kind of no way around it. Do events of the last week have any impact in terms of golf, Josh? They're clearly much bigger than golf, and golf looks about as important as it really is once you see what happened in Israel last week and now what's ongoing from that. Golf is not important at all, but is that whole deal and arrangement now? Is there any fallout from that for that from what we saw last week uh the uh, attacks by hamas yeah. uh last week and yes. as well as the uh current uh reprisal attacks and we'll see how they unfold on gaza uh are certainly going to transform the middle east saudi was either having an agreement or close to having an agreement to normalize relationships with Israel without solving the Palestinian question, uh, which caused a great deal of tension elsewhere in the world. Uh, this could change the Saudis' interest. It could mean that they redirect money away from Gulf, uh, but it's at this stage very hard to know because um, we could see a significant regional war uh, that draws the U.S. in, that draws Iran in, or or we could see um it's certainly i have i just to put it out there i've i lived in jerusalem and i lived in ramallah for a number of years uh so i have both israeli and palestinian friends and my wife's been to gaza numerous times 
Um, and all of my friends, it's really one of my PhD students is a Palestinian lives in Jerusalem. They all have said that there's not, they have never experienced anything like this, including the first intifada and their parents saying, uh, even worse than the 1967 war. So whether or not that escalates, I, I golf will be even further on the back burner and the Saudis interests, uh, in that I can't imagine take center stage, but people uh, want to get on with the things they're interested in. So it could be that the, that this continues. But at this stage, it's hard to see how it will impact golf. But mm. that could change. Hmm. Um, away from golf, this feels pretty scary stuff, Josh. We haven't seen anything quite this explosive, I don't feel, in the world for some time. There seems to have, There's been a shift in the world over the last decade or so to the right, it feels, more broadly, this could be the spark of something really quite significant, couldn't it? And quite frightening. Yeah. Be it's, a downer, but it doesn't feel positive. It's, just, it's funny. Um, I, I was I was hosting uh, a couple people at North Berwick Americans yesterday. We played and then uh, co-went for lunch and we spent the whole time me talking about the Israel-Palestine conflict and the history of it. So, uh my job and somehow keeps having uh, discussions of this interweave with golf, which is both sad and uh, productive. But yeah, it is. Uh, you have the most significant flare up, and it's not just a flare up. There's dead. I mean, there's dead bodies. There's dead children that are murdered. Uh, uh, there are um, two million people in Gaza who who may or may not have anything to do with Hamas, many of them don't, who are fearing for their lives and are cut off from electricity. There's Israelis in in bomb shelters. Uh, this could easily escalate. Uh, we already are seeing cases of uh, settlers in the West Bank attacking Palestinians and vice versa. Whether or not this brings in a broader regional conflict, it, it's hard to say at the moment, but it, but it certainly could. And... Um, it's difficult to look at the world and see uh, a politician who wants to be a leader and not just a politician who's interested in the next election. And anything that solves or engages with these questions involves compromised, difficult decisions that aren't going to make everyone happy. And I don't see uh, anyone in Europe, anyone in the United States, uh, and certainly no one on not Netanyahu and not uh, Abu Mazen, the head of the PA, capable of doing that and mbs of course doesn't doesn't have that cachet he's already seen by many arabs as selling out uh things so uh it, it's it's hard to see how things are gonna resolve anytime soon puts things in perspective a bit doesn't it jeff <laughs> we get we get very lost in our little world of golf don't we? you suddenly realize how little it is ultimately well, throughout this, that's been uh, apparent, and and you see it in the comments even just this week of the reaction to the world ranking news or uh, the God, the, yeah. the sort of drip drip reaction to this deal probably falling apart and like some of Mickelson's stuff and uh, you just you it has reminded throughout. Um, well, one golfers aren't really don't aren't very well read or keep up with the news um just in just in a lot of them not didn't even know i had to explain to one player who who uh who mbs was uh, a couple of years ago i mean just no clue and um so yeah the entire thing has probably not 
help the sport in that sense that that you you are reminded that it it really takes itself quite seriously and in the grand scheme of the world and the world of sports it, it's a, it's a niche sport and it always will and and we've discussed many times here how much trouble the sport gets itself in i think uh, at least believing that it's bigger than it is and not being happy to accept that it's a it's a great sport it's a niche sport and always will be because of the cost and the difficulty and um and and there's nothing wrong with that but of course you know we then we get all the grow the game stuff or Oh God! Uh, we're seeing the, the shift now to the improve the product, which is oh, which is kind of the the, the new version of uh, grow the game. Uh, but grow the game's still hanging in there. I mean, yeah. Bryson got one in this week, and Justin Thomas got one in on on uh, Alan Shipnook. Uh, that Alan should be growing the game and being more positive, not not writing these books. So I mean, they just there. It's um, it, it, the, the it's just been a an eye-opening time, I think, uh, for a lot of people watching the sport. And I don't think it's been uh, particularly positive. No. Have you read Chipnuck's book, Jeff? I have not. I am uh, due to receive a copy on Monday. Okay. I've ordered I got one, a notice. Yeah. Have you? Well, I've ordered one. It's on, it's on the way to Australia, so okay. I don't know when it turns up. But, yeah, it's um, – Well – Yeah, I yeah. mean, Justin's uh, – he just wants a bunch of cheerleaders, doesn't he? By the look of, of it, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, of course. Not hard to find people who are in agreement with him too. Clayton, you're a professional golfer, so clearly this is all your fault. What Jeff's just laid out there, but what mm. do people ask you about these last couple of years, non-golfers? Because you're one of the few who actually does live and breathe outside the world of golf, somewhat more broadly. What do people ask you about, and what do you feel is the general take on golf from those who perhaps don't aren't as involved in it as we are? Well, all they want to talk about is live uh as a let me take off put on my other hat as a golf course designer you know we this is a weird segue um <laughs> this would be one of your best i'm already looking forward to it <laughs> it's always an issue and it's increasingly an issue taking trees out and local councillors who seemingly you know we see it with oakley which is a little nine hole almost par three course jeff just, it's about five minutes from Honeydale and Metropolitan, little nine-hole public course. It's almost like, this is simplistic, but it's almost like they hate golf. They hate the concept of what it is. You know, they, they all see it as an elitist game played by rich people, privileged people, and they don't like the game. But they love the fact that golf courses are covered in trees and insist on, well, you can't cut a tree down because we love the urban canopy and, and we love what golf creates in the cities, but we actually hate the game. And and they kind of fight this kind of dilemma they have with how do they manage the game and how do we, you know, so we're always obviously, you know, we're, we're dealing with 80 years in Perth of bad tree planting and the councils don't want to let us take a single tree out. Well, we can't make the golf course better if we can't take a tree out. So, you know, that that's a window into the fact that they love what golf courses do in the urban environment but actually hate the game. And, of course, well, once that's they- a positive compared to here. Where <laughs> most people who don't like the game also don't even like the course, even though we know they are valuable. Uh, they're valuable as green spaces in large mm. cities. Well, but, yeah. yeah. Uh, and in Melbourne, you know, I played at Royal Melbourne. I played uh, the, the privilege of – playing 36 holes at Royal Melbourne on Monday in two separate 
I did a charity day in the morning at a game with an American friend in the afternoon, which is 36 holes at Royal Melbourne West Coast is pretty nice. But people who they do Heathland walks around Royal Melbourne for people who aren't golfers because, because it's the only it, it's the sole preserve of the Sandringham Heathland. And people who don't play golf go, walk on Royal Melbourne and they can't believe what's growing there. Mm. And, so, and simultaneously you know, want to close it so there's no golfers there and the Heathland can be expanded because this is the last remaining patch yeah, of it. Yeah. So that's the so, kind of thinking that you, you get. Know, the golf courses in Melbourne are incredibly environmentally important mm. because they're the sole preserve of mm. the indigenous vegetation in the city because the rest of the city had just got blown out and we imported European trees and Australian native trees from all over the place and made a complete hash of it. But you know, so golf courses are as I said, the sole preserve of the indigenous vegetation in the city, pretty much. And look, full marks to Royal Melbourne, who most in the golf, the non-golf world would assume is the elite of the elite and the most elitist, and people like you playing 36 holes there, Clates, uh, probably don't help that. But full marks to Royal Melbourne, who do engage. Uh, every year they have an opener. They have a nursery, if I'm not mistaken, Clates, where they yep. cultivate heathland plants, which people can come and buy. They are proactive in that space, not just – they don't just exist as a – as a golf space. And so they don't get enough credit for that within golf. And I'm sure they don't get enough credit from that with that from that for that from outside of golf. Josh, what's your take on the image of the game? We, I can't see, it doesn't feel like Liv's made a positive contribution to the, the image of the game, which I think we all agree has probably always been suffering regardless, but you've been playing the game a long time and you move in some academic circles. Lots of academics aren't pro golf. I think it'd be fair to say, what sort of conversations do you find yourself having? Yeah. So I, as an American, did not grow up playing golf. Uh, the town I grew up in had some public golf courses, a good junior program. Uh, good players came out of there like Ricky Fowler uh, and others. But I was a basketball and baseball guy and golf was seen as an elitist thing to my parents who were teachers. Uh, and so it's very interesting as someone who took up golf later in his life and then really took up golf in Scotland, the difference between how it's perceived in the United States versus how it's perceived in Scotland. Uh, and Scotland is very unique in many of those, these ways. I mean, uh, our janitor at, uh, at the university of Edinburgh with a thick Glaswegian accent is a member at a local club. It's very normal to have that sort of, um, that, that sort of perception of golf, not as an elite game, but within academic circles, within the broader non-Scottish society, the perception is disengaged, elitist, male-centric. Muirfield didn't help that in Scotland. Uh, taking up space that could be better used by others. And uh, what's uh, the, an interesting story, um, uh, a guy, a he's a good friend of mine named uh, Tom Slater. He was a professor of urban geography at Edinburgh and now is the head of uh, Columbia University in New York. He's an Englishman. Uh, we were friends for three years as academics who teach in the humanities, which skews left. Uh, and neither of us told anyone we were golfers because we didn't <laughs> want to deal with the backlash until one day I looked on the T-sheet at North Berwick and saw Tom Slater. So I sent him a, a, a WhatsApp and say, is that the same Tom Slater? And we find out that three years we of working together, we never brought up the fact that we were golfers because there's sort of a perception that academics especially uh, amongst the humanities that golf is is uh, all of the things that you've just you just summarized obviously in in Scotland that's quite different but even um even in North Berwick where the land is technically owned by the council where 
uh, people have right away to walk their dogs or ride their bikes at certain times. And if you're standing on the 18th tee, already being worried about not pushing one onto a car, <laughs> and suddenly you have to wait for five minutes as children run to the beach, uh, they're still even in, in North Berwick, not as much amongst the residents, but amongst like tourists that are coming like why is this golf course on my walk um but of course in north berwick we similar to what you're saying at royal melbourne there's coastal erosion as everyone knows all all over the east coast of scotland uh montrose most famously but we're having a huge issue with the dune down the 11th uh the the long par five uh where we've had to put in half a million pounds and the council put in half a million pounds and this will benefit not just uh, us, but the entire beachfront, which is used by horseback riders and kids and surfers. Yes, they surf sometimes, uh, not that <laughs> impressively. Uh, but it, the the perception, and I, I think Liv has only in, increased this because, of course, if um, a footballer or a rugby player or a basketball player signs a contract, the number gets put out. But when they win the game, uh, or when they win the NBA championship, or they win the the um, uh, uh, the World Cup or the the Champions League, no one's saying, "Oh, Harry Kane won X million pounds this this day for Bayern Munich." It, it it's it the the golf use of money, other than in the majors, I think further illustrates the ways in which uh, this sort of idea of elitism, even now creeping into Scotland which still has a very different tradition than, say, down in England. Yeah, well, you've but, fallen victim there, Josh. You're not using FedEx Cup points, which is what we switched to some time ago, and race to Dubai points, and that's where you've gone wrong there, and there's the problem from within the game. Uh, interesting stuff. Yeah, course, everyone just wants to win the FedEx points. That, that's exactly it has nothing to do with the $18 million. It's, yeah, it's all about the history of the FedEx Cup. That's exactly that's exactly right. Well, I mean, the great thing about golf, right, is obviously in Scotland is there are no fences. No, that's right. You it's know, part, it's, a, it's a, a part of communities, isn't it, Clates? And we've made that mistake in many places here in Australia where it's not part of communities. It's fenced off. It's over there. It's out in the suburbs. It's You've got to drive to get to it. You've got to go through a gate. All of those things, they're, they're kind of little things it would seem, but it adds up to a completely different culture. You don't find as much, I don't think, Josh, anti-golf in Scotland as you do in other parts of the world. Not that it doesn't exist, but nowhere near the way you get it here. People get really riled up about golf courses here in Australia. They'll, they'll say all sorts of things about people who play golf. You you rarely get anti-golf in Scotland, yeah. uh, amongst Scots especially, yeah. um, other than the trunk course and then the debate about the second course up uh, Cools Links that's going on yeah. uh, around Royal Dornock. But most of those people are not Scottish Uh most of those people have actually no interest in the dunes or the birds. It's become this political uh, golfers are trying to take this over thing. But uh, I mean, it's golf is just built into the, yeah. to the culture in Scotland in a way that just defies any other place. I mean, I I've played, I've started to play a lot more down in England with friends at, at Hoylake or at uh, West links or Burkdale or places like that. And, you know, England is not, the same as the States, but I was sort of surprised when I played Sunningdale that you had people walking their dogs through the course who are not playing. Uh, here's one of the most sort of elite prestigious 
golf clubs in a very posh part of London, uh, and you still had a little more of that open access. I can't imagine that. Ha- maybe I'm wrong, but I can't imagine that happening at Marion, for instance. Yeah. Uh, maybe it does, but it, it certainly doesn't happen at the Dallas Country Club where my father-in-law is a member. Just to come back to the golf from it, Chuck, you mentioned Phil Mickelson before. He was on a Twitter rant yesterday. He says we're only on move six of a chess game and that move 32 is where it gets really interesting. (laughs) Are we? Is there perhaps more than is this a was the whole June six agreement a brilliant ploy by the PGA tour to shut down the legal problems that they were having and the money they were spending and that they could then go away from the agreement and get these other investors? Or is it as shallow as it seems on the surface from the outside? Yeah, he's sitting in his hotel room in Jeddah and he's bored and he's trying to convince himself that <clears throat> he's really happy to be there. Uh, life is good. I, I'm sure there are many more uh, layers and steps that are coming uh, when this this agreement falls apart or it's watered down or whatever happens. Um, but when you see the things that he's mentioning, uh uh, it's just you, it's just more of what we've just been discussing. It's it's well we're gonna we're gonna use our collective here um, of people and we're gonna add more players and then we're gonna be able to go to the majors and get more of that revenue that they're generating in it. Yeah, it's just it's it's beyond. First, it's offensive because he he made so much money in his career and it's not our fault that he pissed it away off of what he did in the majors. Or his uh, heartbreak in the majors, he 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 did very well because of the major championships. Number one, and then number two, it just shows how little he knows about what it costs to put on a tournament between the purse, uh, the build out, all of that, and uh, the idea that they aren't getting enough of what those events bring in um, is is uh, is ridiculous i mean they just uh, it shows a total ignorance of where the media landscape is going i mean these organizations are in good shape right now for a few more years with their tv deals the masters doesn't count that's a whole other thing but um you know at some point those deals are are going to end and i don't see them getting paid more than they're getting now so uh and i don't know many people who do unless jeff bezos or uh, the guys at Apple, Eddie Q and, and Tim Cook and, and Eddie, Eddie loves golf, but Tim Cook doesn't, but maybe they decide one day, you know, we got to have golf and they'll badly overpay. It could happen. Um, I don't think so. The way Apple's been, perf- the way it's been going about sports. Um, and so this idea that he, uh, just, it just is continuing to push and believe that, the sport owes these guys more. It, it's just going to keep reminding people of of uh, and, uh, what what you know jagoffs say. A lot of these these people are, and it's just there's a point where that's just going to really eat away at their popularity if there's any left in certain cases. Yeah, indeed, a lot of people tell you Phil has a need to be the smartest guy in the room, and that's a classic example of that, isn't it? That he knows something that you don't. He knows thirty yeah. things that you yeah. don't. And, uh, yeah, and, and 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 this is a problem. And Clates has seen this change in the game. He can speak to it. But where we have, we've always had wealthy people around the sport worshiping these guys. But it feels like we have more than ever, and and it's it's leading to more delusional thinking than ever about their worth in the world of of uh, sport or just the world in general. Yeah, which is right. which is perpetrated by the people with the one of the biggest conflicts in the live thing. The the managers. Who are yeah, getting yeah. 
10 or 20 percent of 100 million dollar contracts and you know i mean but um yeah it's just bizarre and you know i think the reality that tiger woods was a perhaps a once in a century player yep. you know i mean everything got driven by tiger and you know there's been jones and nicholas and palmer and hogan and but tiger was you know bigger than all those guys i think and and, and arguably he, you know we don't see another tiger woods for 100 years i mean he was you know i i think we lived through that time and took it for granted how brilliant he was and how much interest he brought to the game and now he's gone essentially no one cares about patrick cantley and xander no. you know patrick, like just, patrick you know, and xander like, both do though clates and uh and uh, <laughs> you're right about Tiger. Though. Blame is the wrong word, but this really is all uh, an extension of Tiger, is it not? Where and we saw this in Australia very early. Tiger was worth paying three million dollars to come here. You got a return on that investment if you paid him. Yeah, Phil that didn't mean, was never worth. That didn't two mean million. Phil was worth two. That's exactly I mean, right. Yeah, Tiger said I'm got worth to three. Two. Phil said, well, I'm, I'm, well I'm, I must be worth two. If That's Tiger right. said he was worth one, which is a lot of money for a week's work, mm. then. Phil's only worth seven hundred fifty, but right. so Tiger completely distorted the market. But he was the only one that was worth it. And of course, what happened though, Clades, was if you were running a tournament, you didn't have three million, but you had two. Well, you'd get Mickelson, even though he wasn't worth it, because yeah. you had to have somebody. So this is kind of the fallout from that. And you're right; I don't think anybody will see two Tigers in a lifetime, will they, Josh? I know your Christian Muslim thing is more your specialty, but I don't think any of us is going to get to see another Tiger. We've been incredibly privileged. No, the. Whether you have a golfer who could play as well as Tiger, which is hard to even imagine, but the cultural phenomenon, yeah. especially a cultural phenomenon before uh, social media or on the cusp of social media, where he breaks through beyond any sport, um, you know, in American American sports, uh, whether or not LeBron James is as good as as Michael Jordan, we can debate. But there's he, he's not the cultural phenomenon that Michael Jordan was. Yeah. It's the same with with Tiger Woods. I can't imagine a golfer that could put up the kind of run that Tiger did in the early aughts uh, for generations. Uh, but as you said, it then leads into a whole host of financial expectations, and many golfers have benefited from this. Uh, but it also just skews the the reality. Um, I mean. The, the Ryder Cup, a, a case in point, it's just insane uh, for the European, my European friends who have been mocking me incessantly for the last few weeks uh, that Cantlay or, or Xander would think that they're so important that you need to to pay pay them for this. I mean, that that's a question, but the, the fixation that we only do things for money when for Europeans, the Ryder Cup is the biggest thing. Uh, this just further feeds into this obsession that they're not really about the competition, even if they stayed. Uh, because one of the arguments was if, if you stay, um, that's because you want to win the majors. That's because you care about legacy. But then to have somebody who stayed and then is asking for money at this most important event, at least in Europeans' minds, I, I find uh, just further. I mean, they despised Cantlay and Xander for that. Yeah. Jeff, I heard something really interesting. A friend of the pod, Richard Gillis, his own podcasts, might be one of the very first ones they did, the Unofficial Partner podcast. An interesting theory put by a cohort of his that Tiger and Serena Williams were the last of the two big television sports stars. There was an era that has now mm. ended where television was the dominant medium 
and they were right in the sweet spot of where that apexed and that we're no longer there. Mm. That's partly we're unlikely to see another player with the gifts, physical gifts and mental game that Tiger brought. We're unlikely to see a media landscape where you can perhaps have another Tiger also, aren't we? And that's correct. And and it's what um, is is confounding to me in all of this right now that, that these guys are – uh, believing that all these numbers uh, thrown about are that they're they're worth, and again, do you do you read? Do you see what's going on? You know, a lot of these things have overpaid on rights fees. Um, again, golf just doesn't quite know its lane, it seems, and uh, uh, I think they're going to be in for for quite a surprise when they sit down again. They they may get lucky. There it may be that Apple and Amazon, which have different economics, may go. Um, we're fine overpaying a little bit um, because this fits our strategy. But uh, and that's what happened with the USGA and Fox a few years ago. Uh, and I'm and the USGA is behaving like an organization that knows they're not going to get that same amount of money in their next contract, which starts in 2027, which isn't that far off. Um, so uh, we have a, we have multiple steps. Uh, and 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 places to go with this media landscape right now because uh, nobody's really solved the television issue of of the the kind of ease of watching something uh and it may not it may never be solved we may go backwards in the uh kind of the interface of the television and how you find things and uh, i think things will get better in some form but it's still not as simple as it used to be where you just punch in a number and and you go and so it's just one of many layers to this whole thing that, uh, go, and we have, I know we've discussed it here many times. Golf is not a sport you actively sit down to watch. You turn it on and it's on in the background. I have the wonderful live event here where <laughs> I think there's more of us on the zoom than there are on, uh, uh watching the, the golf and Jetta, but, uh, you don't really go out of your, and the only reason I turned it on was, was Josh mentioned it. I went, Oh yeah, that's on channel five. I mean, they finished hours ago, but I knew it was on channel five and that was easy to pull up. If I, if it was on streaming, I've got to go through more layers and which is amazing. When you think about it, the technology is actually in a way gone backwards in the sense of, of the, but that's happened in several other mediums, uh, you know, namely, uh, well, music's kind of gone backwards and sound quality. So golf has this this issue of and and baseball's about to really deal with this here in the US because their regional the regional sports networks through cable are failing. And baseball's another sport where it's kind of a background sport, whereas other sports you you know the length of the contest, it's not as long. You'll you will possibly sit down to watch it or you'll go to a pub and watch it, whatever. Um, there it's a different viewing experience and golf doesn't have that. And that's fine. It's okay to be different, but you also need to know your, know your worth in that, with that, um, with that issue, uh, looming out there. And then all the overpaying and rights fees and, and then who gets, what's a priority in rights fees for these various entities. And it's why when, you know, back to why we had Josh on when, when the crown prince is talking about GDP and like, well, who's going to pay you? <laughs> Who's going to pay you money for live and and um, the franchise thing might happen, but it's just anyway. It, it it I find it all. I just the more I I I look at it, the more it feels like it's just more of a play to mm. to uh, for the piff to to be able to 
hang out with uh with special people as as Yasir did last week in St. Andrews and yeah. still didn't get him any world ranking points. The franchise thing's interesting anyways that Jeff is a business well. Even if you sold all twelve teams for a billion dollars, you've made twelve billion, but you're not doing that every year. <laughs> no, it's that it's that idea that you, you just build the 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 increase the value and yeah. and um yeah, exactly. So they would own a percentage of that. Yeah. That was the way the PGL struck structured it. Hmm. And they would retain that through sales and but again it's just i don't you know compared to what they make and other things it's just it's chump change um i think last question sorry do you see any significant signings coming jeff any live signings coming? i do i think i think once these uh this agreement falls apart you're gonna have some players uh some older guys Grab a grab one last check. Uh, I don't know who that still would on be, but I know well, that some writers have told me some guys have signaled when the when the deal was made that they were they were they were open to a short term check if Liv was going to hang around for two years before the tour dissolved it. Well, I think it's looking more and more like that's Liv's going to hang around longer than a year or two. And will they keep? So yeah, that and that's that's how they still can, keep putting up the money. It. Will Liv still keep putting up money for the Westwoods and the Polters? Well, they're mad. I think if they get mad by the way this deal falls apart, if it if it if it falls apart in a way that it was like, well, good, we got rid of the depositions. You go, you do your thing. We'll give you a few few bucks here, and they 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 kind of find a way to smooth it out. I think that 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 decreases the chances. Uh, but if they piss them off and this gets into a a battle. I fully expect Liv to uh, throw some silly money back at, you know, four hundred million back at John Rahm or or uh, Victor Hovland, uh, four hundred million or whatever whatever it is, uh, and to, to if nothing else, kind of screw with the tour. Mm, indeed. Last question for me, and it's for all of you, and I'll start with you, Jeff. Uh, is professional golf? Does it just remind us it's actually really not that important? And what's really important is the future of Oakley Golf Club down here in Melbourne. That provides a service to loads and loads of people, including lots of disabled people that uh, our friend Sandy Jamison works with there from the Rich and Belong program. Uh, is that going to become more of a reality for golfers to understand that professional golf actually just isn't that important? And is professional golf helping us to understand that with all of this? No, Clates mentioned the, the managers and the agents, and they, they, the, the players are now insulated enough that they, uh, and they, and they read so little and they, and they know so little about the everyday game or what it costs to put on a tournament or uh, all the things that go into putting on a tournament that they're, they're so disengaged and they're so not curious about any of that, that I just don't, yeah, other than a Max Homa and there's, there's going to be a handful of people out there who have some, uh, retention and touch with reality. <laughs> They'll always have it just because they're, they're quality individuals. Mm. Um, but I don't see that changing. And I think it's, What's what's really interesting on that question, Rob, uh, Rod, is is what a uh, what obvious frustration the 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 uh, USGA, the RNA, and I think to lesser extents, but to some extent, the Masters and the PGA of America have with this purse stuff, um, because they actually are right now uh, populated by people who who do want to use those proceeds to do interesting things in the game. So they're they're getting more frustrated than I think even the pred- their predecessors who tended to be a little bit more gun shy about the kinds of things that are actual grassroots things that are good for the sport. Uh, this group, 
the people now we're looking at um, get those things much more. Whether you know how they go about it, we can we can argue whether Augusta National redoing the local muni is a really a good a good thing. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I don't think it's a bad thing, but it, as long we'll see what the final green fee is. But uh, I think when you have this group of people, they're getting annoyed. And they're they're going to look at these guys and get even more. Um, just just their disdain is going to keep growing, and um, they these the, the players just. I mean, the piece I'm working on right now related to Phil's comments is I just don't think they understand how replaceable ninety five percent of them are. The well, well, and how increasingly there are more and more people I know who say I just never watch anymore. Yes, agreed. yeah, they're, they're yeah. more and more disengaged with the game. And I mean, the most interesting thing this week was Lexi Thompson missing the cup by three shots, which I thought was a phenomenal effort. Mm, yeah, she, great effort. And what does that say about the, <laughs> the rest of the tour? Yeah, I mean, she beat how many blokes did she beat? 40, 50, 60 men. She beat a decent number. Yeah, mm, and okay. she's she's she struggling to keep her card on the. Yeah, yeah, she, yeah. She's 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 far from being the best player on the tour at the moment. Yeah, hasn't uh, quite uh, same question for you in that case. Then you talk to a lot of people in golf. You you mentioned there. You're hearing a lot of people say they don't watch it anymore. Are those same people now taking more of an interest in the happenings at Oakley, perhaps? Ah, uh, perhaps. Yeah, you know, I just think they, you know, that's a you know, it's a tiny little course in Melbourne that most most Melbourne golfers would never have played. But when the council come out and say, well, there are five clubs within 10 minutes of Oakley, well, yeah, the Metropolitan, yeah. you know, Commonwealth and Huntingdale and Yarra Yarra, if you want to play $6,000 a year and 15000 to join, then sure there are. But if you want to go and play Oakley, you can play for 20 bucks. The ignorance is staggering, isn't it? So, so, if you're going to become so, involved in the dis- discussion in good faith, you should yeah. at least understand the difference between Metropolitan and Oakley. That, that's yeah, the least yeah, we should yeah. be able to ask of you. And the guy came on the news and said, well, it's got, what do you say? It's got 88 members? Well, it's a public cause. Of course, it doesn't have any members. Yeah, I mean, right. there are a few people who are there's some sort of membership category, but the vast majority of people who play there are not members. That was a completely disingenuous thing to say that. Absolutely. It's almost malicious misinformation, isn't it, in some ways? Yeah. And if you if you don't you, know because yeah. you don't know. I, mean, I, I was yeah. joking, but the biggest shopping centre, Jeff and Josh, in the Southern Hemisphere is a place called Chadston, which is literally five minutes down the road. And that's the biggest recreational centre in the whole of, the, whole of the Melbourne. I mean, <laughs> it absolutely you, is. You, you, you know, yeah, they say they want more recreational space. You walk into Chadston at... <laughs> 2.30 on Saturday afternoon, I look, why aren't these people playing golf? I mean, there are thousands and thousands of people that are just walking around looking at the shopping centre. There's a hotel there now, isn't there, Clayton? You can go and stay at the shopping centre. There's yeah, a massive hotel there, and, yeah. and it's expensive, and it's really nice. Yeah. <laughs> now, now, has had what hap- is happening here happened there yet where some failed retailers and retail spaces are being converted to pickleball uh, clubs no, or no, no, not no, yet. That's no, coming. No, it's coming. It's coming. Is it? Yeah, it's happening here in uh, amazing ways, really, which I think is great. Uh, I I yeah. think it's fantastic. I'm, I'm not like sure you said, it's too. better people playing pickleball than just walking around gazing yeah. at purses or or uh, TVs. Yeah, I'm not sure there are too many failed retailers at Chadston. It's a massive, <laughs> and it's an incredibly <laughs> successful shopping centre. Seems to go around. Yeah. In fact, speaking of Sandy Jamison, he's often said that one of the best things you can do is stand outside Chadston Shopping Centre and say to people who wouldn't be allowed on your golf course, you can't go in wearing that and see what sort of reaction you get yeah. and, why, and why people might feel a bit anti-golf in some ways. Josh, is this disconnect between professional golf and grassroots golf perhaps in some ways 
a potential positive for the game. If we start to focus more on some of the things we're talking about, the little nine-hole course that needs saving in suburban Melbourne as opposed to whether Ram gets a $350 or $400 million offer from Liv, it feels like there might be a positive outcome from that. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you have this rapid growth, at least here in Scotland, I think in the States, in Australia, uh, of interest in golf, uh, people taking up the game, there is no space at any of the East Lothian courses. You have to wait now. I had to wait two years to get in North Berwick. It's now closed for men and eight years for women. Similar at Kilspindy, Dunbar, uh, not quite that long. Golan's 25-year wait. Um, and so you have this rapid interest in increased desire to play golf. And you also have all of these people who are watching golf in different media. I'm, you know, I'm not huge into the YouTube golf thing. But as you were saying earlier about changes in in how people watch and Serena Williams and Tiger Woods being the last TV stars, um, I mean, more people probably know who younger people know who Rick in the UK, who Rick Shields is than uh, who uh, Luke List is by far. Um, yeah. And the ways in which, I mean, it was, it's really interesting because obviously North Berwick has got lots of pros that like to play. Uh, North Berwick in the week of the Scottish Open, increasingly so, caddies, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but in addition to them bragging about Jordan and JT and Max Homa playing, and I played with Sahith Agala and blah, 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 they also pointed out, oh, Rick Shields played the week before. Uh, and so that's just indicative of the ways that people are engaging with golf, not just through the PGA Tour or not even primarily through the PGA Tour, yeah. uh, but through actually playing the game or watching people that they can relate to at a much uh much more regular sense um that okay here's a here's a guy who's a pro but he's actually can't break 75 quite regularly or he's playing in a 35 mile per hour wind at north barrack and shoots 86 uh those are attracting viewers more than watching the same thing over and over and over again at a nondescript course in the middle of America at TPC, who the hell knows? Uh, and so the growth of it, it's just really fascinating to me that the decline or the coherence of at least the PGA tour and the DP world tour in another sense is coming at the very same time that you have an interest in growth in golf, uh, in different ways, people taking it up that don't normally expect it. So, as you all have said, not only on this podcast, but in previous ones of yours, the fixation on golf through the professional lens and, and, the, and the the very, very highest professional lens is just not the reality of what most people are caring about. Yeah. I, most people care about whether or not uh, we beat uh, the new club in a four-ball match and have a nice dinner afterwards and then joke about me missing a three-foot putt or something. I mean, that's what people are talking about here. I mean, very rarely are they talking about anything other than the majors in the Ryder Cup. That isn't to say that everyone wasn't excited that JT and Jordan were here. No. Uh, or, or, you know, when I was playing, I played with Figala because I went to university with his agent, uh, and Figala decided to play the morning of. And, you know, one of the things he was saying was how much he loved it because it felt like playing golf for fun and feel and mm. uh getting back to these views and it wasn't about all the things that he was used to playing where it was just target golf it's there's a 30 mile per hour wind i'm i gotta figure out how to get in the hole and he said it reminded of him of being a kid that's 
I mean, that's one of the benefits of Scotland. And from what I hear, Melbourne and other places where you can play the ball on the ground, you can, you can have my daughter who's just, just getting a handicap at 13, make her way around goal and three. And I can still struggle around goal and three because I can't get it close to the pin. Yeah. TPC wherever uh, alone will get you an invite back, Josh. You've you've endeared yourself <laughs> with just just with that one line alone. Of course, part of the problem is Josh. All of you woke lefties have suddenly realised that you do all play golf in your end-to-end encrypted WhatsApp messages, and that's what's caused this run on all the golf courses in Scotland. So uh, you're you're to blame for your own problem there. It's been fantastic. I don't think I've missed anything, have I, Jeff or Clates with Josh? We can let him go. No, no, it's terrific. Yeah. Thank you, Josh. Yeah, thank you, Josh. Absolutely fascinating. And, I'll, and you're here in January, Josh, for three months? Yeah, I'm I'm uh, January, February, and March at the University of Melbourne. I'm on research leave, so Ooh. the person I was supposed to collaborate at Georgetown retired and moved back to Melbourne, and that works better for me than being in DC in an election year. <laughs> no, well, it's, well, it's the it's the best time of the year to play golf. So we can knock off all the sandbelt clubs while you're here. What a shame you won't yeah, have yeah. time, Josh, because you'll so be so busy doing your research and your work, and you won't be able to play any golf. Unlikely, you'll be uh, you'll have a great guide in Clates if you stay in yeah, touch with them. I can my, assure you. My wife is already just anytime when we start talking about why we're going to Melbourne and she's like, well, it's the weather for me and the kids and it's the golf for Josh. She's lying about everything else. Uh, <laughs> she's on to you. Mm. Being oh, so fabulous. The, so the kids are coming as well? Uh, yeah, we're uh, my wife and, and my 13 and 10 year old will be there. So oh, well, my, yeah. my, just we, 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 sorry, we can take her to Royal Melbourne and Kingston. We'll give her the, the, <laughs> Brand new handicap experience of playing Royal Melbourne and Kingston Heath when she's here, and then she will be yeah, I'm sure. absolutely hooked. That is uh, that is quite the treat if she gets to that. Josh, it's been fantastic of you to take some time to chat to us today. It's been I don't think we've got any answers, but we've got lots and lots to think about, and that's probably more important. So, I really appreciate you taking the time, mate. Thank you for that. Cheers. Jeff, as always, thank you, my friend. Quadrilateral, make sure people sign up. You've been doing some great stuff in there. And as I said, I've been really enjoying the McKellar podcast with yourself and Lawrence. You're among the few outlets that have really stayed on top of this uh, events of June 6th story. So well done on that and uh, keep doing the work because I don't see well, it anywhere that, else. Thank you. That's Lawrence likes to uh, – he's fascinated probably more than I am by it. I just get annoyed uh, at certain stages like uh, today, like when I'm writing this piece on Phil and his <laughs> stupid comments. So I'm trying to find the comedy, though, in these this uh, yes. this stuff. And same with the the uh, the Ryder Cup, which was quite, uh, quite entertaining, I thought. Yeah, indeed. The, the golfer side, it was quite entertaining as well. We look forward to seeing that in the quadrilateral, hopefully, soon, that piece you work on. And Clay, it's always great to chat to you, my friend, and uh, looking forward Thank to catching up again soon. Talk to you then. Well, um, See you soon, no doubt. Uh, I'm going to try and come down for the Asia Pacific. Okay, I'm counting for Lucas there. So what a surprise, Clay! Yeah. <laughs> staggered Thanks. to hear that, and then no doubt playing in the afternoon or walking another 18 holes somewhere else when you finished. You uh, you amaze me. I've turned into a caddy. Yeah, uh, um, all right. Yeah, so yeah. the Asia Pacific will be fun. Be good. There, all the big wigs are down from Augusta and the RNA. They all wander around in their green jackets, and yeah, I'm you'll like- get to bend their ear plates on the. If we yeah. we should have a, uh, I was just looking uh, on the dates on that. We should have a decision here pretty soon. Uh, yeah, you should. Yeah, it's gonna. be, Yeah, it could, who knows? It might happen the week after. But yeah, you'll. Yeah, I hope you bend some ears down there, plates on the uh, ball. Yeah, the ball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 
it'll be a topic of conversation, no doubt. You can stand sure it'll come up. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure it'll come well, As every every path for Royal Melbourne is right. it's just <laughs> driving a wedge. It's just a driving a wedge. <laughs> That's exactly right. Exactly right. Uh, uh, that'll do us for episode 127, I, thought, I think I said it was. 127? 128. 128. Yeah. Well done, Clates. You have a Why does Clates always know the numbers? I wrote it down when Rod said it at the start. <clears throat> oh, Do you remember, Shaq, that it was one of our first episodes, we were talking about something, and Clate said, out of nowhere, yeah, it was like Arnold Palmer in the 1962 US Open, you know, in the second round, that eight iron, he hit to the fourth green. And I remember <laughs> there was yeah. you, me, and it might have been Huggy, three blokes who know a bit about golf, and we were just staggered. And I said to Clates, how do you know that? And his response was, yeah. how do you not? <laughs> just... Decimated again. I Clates, do remember you, that. You just, you're a freak. We uh, and we love you for it. Uh, we, uh, thank you. We appreciate it. We'll be back next time on episode 129 here on State of the Game. State of the Game is a Talk and Golf production. Theme music, Writers Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.